starting and welcome to those who are joining us right now on Facebook. But I want to tell you, um, I am super excited about today. And I've been telling you that Numbers is one of my very favorite books in all the Bible. And today I'm going to tell you just two stories from it, and you're going to see why. Because I'm telling you these are the most incredible stories. Now just, we're about to play one of those Bible Project videos, but I just want to set you up for it so that you can really get out of it what we need to get out of it today. And that is this. Remember, the Jewish people were in Egypt and they were in bondage. And they were, they, there was a God that they had heard about but had no relationship with. And then that God delivered them as they cried out in their slavery God heard and he delivered them through the most extraordinary miracles. The, the 10 plagues and the amazing things that happened there were, were for the, all of the last ones, the people of Israel were not experiencing what the people of Egypt right next to them were. I mean, that shows something. See, God was trying to reveal something about himself. He was trying to reveal who he is and how much he cares and how much he can care for you even in a world that's going to hell in a handbasket that he cares for you and that he's got you. And then this pillar of cloud of by day and fire by night then starts to lead them. I mean, that's a pretty extraordinary thing. And it even protects them from the Egyptian army. And then they get to the Red Sea. And now the sea parts. They go through on dry ground, totally safe. But when the enemies pursue the water collapses and kills all their enemies. They're on the other side with their enemies gone. This is an extraordinary thing that God has done for them, right? But it doesn't quit there. Then there's bitter water that's made sweet, and there's water that comes from a rock, and then there's uh, manna that shows up every single morning. And, now watch this, on a regular day, if you collect too much manna and try and save it till the next day, it rots and has worms in it. But on the sixth day, there's a double amount that you can collect. There's a double amount on the ground every sixth day. You can collect it, and it doesn't rot the next day so that you can Sabbath the next day. Now, now think about what you're supposed to be learning when that happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? Does God have you? Extraordinarily so, right? And then there's quail that's coming in. And by the way, it's just two and a half million people that God is watering, feeding, doing all, taking care of. Their, their shoes aren't wearing out, nothing. It, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And then they get to the Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, of course, they're there. By the time they leave Mount Sinai, they're a year there. But at Mount Sinai, the Lord descends in thunder and lightning such as to terrify everybody who looks upon it. Do you remember, as Justine pointed out, 70 of their elders go up and talk with God face to face. So this isn't some storm. There's not a naturalistic explanation for it. This is God, and 70 of the elders see it and are able to go back to the people and say, this is God, right? So by the time they leave Mount Sinai, and that's when, the, or Mount, yeah, Sinai, and that's when we're headed, they're supposed to be now going into the land. By the time they leave there, they've been there about a year. That's gonna be important in just a sec. And understand what Numbers was supposed to be about was real simple. Having showed you who he was, we now come into trust with him. We begin to follow him and we enter what he's trying to bring to us. 
which is the promised land on one level, but Justine pointed out beautifully last week, the real thing was coming into God's presence. So what Numbers is supposed to be is a numbering of the people to show how many people followed God and entered into what God had for them. What does it actually become? All of those people not actually entering into the things that God had for them because they didn't trust him. I'm getting a low bass. Can you guys hear that? Now, I want to show you something here. Okay, are we on my? Yeah. I don't have, oh, I have it now. Okay, so uh, could you click again for me until I get this working? That's my fault. Okay, if we had to sum up what's going on here, it's this right here. This is the fire by night and cloud by day. Now look where it is. What's God trying to say through this? All these things that happen, we're supposed to be looking at. What's God trying to communicate? What's he trying to get us to understand so that we will follow him? Well, what he's saying is, I wanna be in the midst of you. That he's right there in the middle of the camp. I wanna be right amongst you. That's where I want to be right? And when I move, I want you to follow me. So again, numbers could be summed up in follow me, come with me, be with me. <laughs> See, I've given you this, I've showed you who I was, and now numbers is this invitation to enter into what I have for you. That's what it is. Now understand, this is not just an invitation to the Israelites, this is an invitation to you and me right now. The same journey that they're taking from who is God to entering into what he has for you. This is the journey that we're all on, all the time. And this is what he wants us to do. And so the thing is, what he's saying is, remember what he's been saying now since Joe's amazing sermon back at the beginning of August, where God set us on a new path, a new season of sermons. And what that was about was, for, for several weeks, what God was saying was, do you love me? Or do you love what I do for you? What is it that you love? What I do for you? Or is it me? And he was trying to say, strip away all the other stuff and come to find out who I really am. So you fall in love with me and then the stuff isn't important. Which is to say in another way, obey, follow me and me only. And here's why this is important. This is how we get to where he's trying to take us. He wants to give you something. He wants to bring you into something. Now, what is he really bringing us into? Again, Justine's sermon last week. It's not the land, really. It's his presence, a place flowing with milk and honey. What does that mean? He wants to bring you into his presence where there is abundance. There's everything and way more than you can even imagine. Now, this is where we're supposed to be going I'm going to show the video now, and I want you to be seeing that God is trying to invite them, trying to get them to come, trying to get them to come. But Numbers now is the place where God, having shown us so much, he's now holding us accountable to how we're reacting to what he's showing us. Because Numbers is the place where, unfortunately, they don't receive what he's doing. So take a look. Look at Numbers. This fourth book of the Bible carries forward the story of Israel after their exodus from slavery in Egypt. God had brought them to Mount Sinai, and he entered into a covenant with them there. And despite Israel's rebellion, God had graciously provided a way for Israel to live near his holy presence in the tabernacle. 
So the book of Numbers begins as Israel wraps up their one-year stay at Mount Sinai, and they head out into the wilderness on their way to the land that God promised Abraham. Now, the book's storyline is designed according to the stages of their journey. So the first section begins at Mount Sinai, but then they set out and travel to the wilderness of Paran. And then from there, they travel to the plains of Moab, which is right across from the Promised Land. Now, the first part opens with a census where the people are numbered. That's where the book gets its name. And then there are laws about how the tribes of Israel were to be arranged in their camp. So the tabernacle was to be at the center. And then around that, the priests and the Levites. And then around them, the 12 tribes neatly arranged with Judah at their head. Now, this was all an elaborate symbol about how God's holy presence was at the center of their existence as a people. This is all followed by a whole series of laws that develop the purity laws from the book of Leviticus. If God's presence was going to be in their midst, every effort should be made to make the camp pure, a place that welcomes God's holiness. In chapter 10, the cloud of God's presence lifts from the tabernacle and guides Israel away from Sinai out into the wilderness, and immediately things go terribly wrong. So in chapter 11, the people start complaining about their hunger and thirst and how they want to go back to Egypt. And then in chapter 12, Moses' own brother and sister begin opposing and bad-mouthing him in front of all of the people. This trip is not off to a good start. The next section begins as the Israelites arrive in the desert of Paran, about halfway to the Promised Land. And God tells Moses to send out the 12 spies, one for each tribe, so they can scout out the Promised Land. So when the spies all return, 10 of them say that there is no chance Israel can survive there because the Canaanites will destroy them. But there are two spies, Caleb and Joshua, who say that God can save them. But the 10 whip up the people into a fearful rage and they start planning a mutiny. They're going to appoint a new leader and head back to Egypt. So God is understandably angry and Moses intercedes on the people's behalf. He calls God to be faithful to his promises to Abraham. And so God does, but not at the expense of his justice. He gives these Israelites what they want to not enter the land. And God sentences this generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they die. Only their children will get to enter the promised land. Now, you'd think this severe consequence would wake them up, but it gets even worse. So in the next story, there's a whole group of Levites that begin a rebellion, and they challenge Moses and Aaron's leadership, saying that they have gone way too far. So God deals severely with these Levites, and he renews his commitment to Moses and Aaron as Israel's leaders. Now, as they leave the region of Paran and hit the road, it goes downhill yet again. The Israelites start complaining again about their thirst, and they ask why Moses even brought them out of Egypt in the first place. So God tells Moses to speak to a rock to bring out water for all of the people. But Moses doesn't really do this. He oversteps his bounds. He hits the rock twice and then says, you rebels, do we have to bring water out of this rock? So Moses dishonors God by putting himself in God's place as the one who brings out the water. And so Moses brings down on himself the same fate as the wilderness generation. He too will die in the desert and never get to enter the promised land. After this, the Israelites rebel yet again, and God brings a very strange judgment on them, venomous snakes to come and bite the people. 
And so Moses again intercedes on behalf of the people. And God tells Moses to do this, to make a bronze snake and lift it up on a pole so that whoever looks at this snake would be healed of the poisonous snake bite. It's a very strange symbol, but it speaks to the challenge that God has by being faithful to his covenant. He's right to bring justice on the Israelites' evil and sin. But even God's justice gets transformed into a source of life for those who will look to God for healing. From here, the people head into the plains of Moab. And the first main part of the section focuses on the strange figure of Balaam. So the king of Moab is freaked out at this huge group of people traveling through his territory. So he hires a pagan sorcerer, Balaam, to pronounce curses on Israel. And three different times, Balaam finds that he cannot curse them. He can utter only blessing upon Israel. Remember God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. So not only can Balaam not curse Israel, but God actually gives him a vision about a future Israelite king who will one day bring God's justice to all of the nations. This vision recalls Jacob's promised Judah in Genesis chapter 49. Now, it's worth stopping to reflect on the flow of the book so far. The rebellion stories in the wilderness, they just heap up on one another, getting worse and worse. And while God does bring partial acts of judgment on Israel, he's also kept showing mercy, providing food and water along the way. And so the Balaam story, it shows God's grace in bright colors. Because here's Israel, they're down in the camp grumbling and rebelling, but up in the hills, unbeknownst to them, God is protecting and even blessing them. And it's this contrast between Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness in the wilderness, that's what made these stories so important for later generations of Israel. So the wilderness stories are retold time and again by later biblical prophets, and poets, and even by the apostles in the New Testament. And these stories always serve as a warning that while God will remain faithful to his covenant promises, he will also allow his people to walk away in rebellion and face the consequences. After this, the rest of the book focuses on the children of the wilderness generation, and they begin preparing to inherit the promised land. They take another census of the new generation, then they go on and win a number of battles with the people groups around them, and then a few tribes even begin to settle in the promised land. So the book ends with the new generation poised to enter into the land, and Moses is about to deliver his final words of wisdom and warning. But for now... That's what the book of Numbers is all about. Wow. Um, you can give to them, by the way. They, they just do all of this stuff for free, and you can support them. And I'm, uh, our church, hopefully, is going to be doing that because I just really think what they're doing is an amazing resource, one better than anything I've almost ever seen for the church. So anyway, um, oops. So where we are, did I just go all the way through that? Yeah. Um, where we are, as I told you, that we're going to do two stories, okay? So the first one actually starts in Exodus, and then it finishes in, in Numbers. So it's a part one and part two of a story that is very much connected. So let's look at the one that starts in Exodus. At the Lord's command, now this is right after they got through the Red Sea, so this is right when they're learning who God is. And so let me say something. Right when you're learning who God is, there's a certain amount of grace for not getting it right? Not understanding it and not, there's a certain amount of like understanding, like how would you know? You know what I mean? It's still not good, but at least there's some understanding of it. So here they are right after the Red Sea and the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel moved from place to place. Eventually they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. 
So once more, the people complain against Moses. Now Moses' response here is perfect, right? It is, give us water to drink. They demanded. But what Moses says is, quiet. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? This God who delivered you and did all this kind of stuff, why are you doing this? So it's right that he's turning it back and saying, why are you doing this? Now, the people, though, they don't like that, so they tormented by thirst. We're always driven by the things of the world more than the things of God. See the lesson? But tormented by thirst, they continue to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, our livestock with thirst? Yeah, sure, that's what I was trying to do. That's what God was all about, right? How silly, okay? Moses did exactly the right thing. He cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. He cried out to the Lord. Now look, what we've been seeing over and over and over already is when people cry out to the Lord, what does he do? He answers. When they were slaves, they cried out. He answered. When people even before that cried out, he answered. When the, here they are. So Moses cries out to the Lord. And here's what I'm saying here. This is where we need to be in our walk. I've told you before, my number one prayer, you can add almost every other prayer I've ever prayed, and then it adds up to this one being more, and that is help. Crying out to him, saying, help. I've got this problem. I don't know what to do. Help. Crying out to the Lord. This is what we need to do as his children, okay? That may not sound sort of mature, but let me be clear. If you get so mature that you're no longer crying out, you're off, okay? So with that said, okay, now here's what the Lord does. The Lord says to Moses, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile and it became red, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I'll stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and the water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. Two and a half million plus animals. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and the water gushed out as the elders looked on. Now, right here, let me ask you a question. Where are we in timeline? The first one in Exodus... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in Exodus, sorry. Okay. Sorry. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock. There's supposed to be a slide in there. That's why I'm getting confused. So Moses did what? He strikes the rock. God tells him to strike the rock, and he strikes the rock. This is in Exodus. This is right after the Red Sea. Now, we're going to the story in Numbers. Okay? The story in Numbers happens when? It's chapter 20. You remember the video? It's in the third section. They've already been wandering for 40 years. They've been being fed every single day. Manna in the morning, quail in the evening, their shoes not wearing out. Miracle after miracle after miracle. They've been provided for for 40 years. Do you think that they should be a different kind of people now? I've been walking with the Lord for about 40 years. Amazingly, the Lord has shown me how little I've grown a few times recently, right? I've already been talking about it. I'll talk about it again. So them is us. Us is them. Learn from them and what God does. Important, really important. So numbers now. In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kiddush. There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. 
Oh, God's been feeding us and doing everything else, but I guess he can't deliver water. The people blamed Moses and said, if only we died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into the wilderness to die along with all the livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt? They're still uh, crying out for Egypt, not God. <laughs> They're still crying out for the things of the world. So why did you die along with our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water. Right? So... Is this any different than the Exodus story? Have they grown at all? <laughs> Unbelievable, right? Moses and Aaron turned away from the people, went to the ends of the tabernacle, and did what they do, cry out. They get on their faces and they cry out. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it'll pour out its water. Speak. What, what did he do the first time? Strike. This time, speak. Now, that'll become critical here in two seconds. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and livestock. By the way, you. Who's providing the water? The video said that it was Moses taking credit, but it's interesting here that God is actually kind of saying Moses is going to do this. By, by doing this, you are going to provide and let me be really clear about something to a charismatic body whom we hope the Holy Spirit moves through in order to do what God wants to do. It is him that's doing it. Do we all understand that? Yeah. It is him that's doing it. You can't do anything. But what does God always do about it? You. <laughs> He's not saying I'm not the one doing it. He's just saying be my vessel. Be willing to let me go through you to do. That's what he's trying to get us to in everything. So you will provide enough water. So Moses did, he was just told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come to gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, must we bring water? Now again, the video made a big deal about it was the we part. And let's be clear, that wasn't good of Moses. The video's not wrong to point out that Moses did something that he shouldn't have done. Must God continue to prove himself to you? Why do you tempt God? That's what he said in Exodus right? But after you've sort of moved in the things of the Lord for a long time, there's this funny little thing that happens. We begin to sort of think we're pretty good at it too. So I always say something about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They must come from you crying out because then when he does them, you'll know that it wasn't you. <laughs> and then you keep it right. You keep him enthroned and you keep you subservient. See, you're his instrument. That's it. Okay, but nonetheless, here we go. So must we, that's what they were bringing out. But I want to show you something. That's not real. He's not, for one of the rare times in this whole thing, in fact, for the first time in all these videos, I have, we have a brief little moment where I think they missed an incredibly important point that is important not just for us understanding the story, but for us understanding our lives today and the New Testament. Here's what's really going on, Okay. Then Moses raised his hand and did what? Struck the rock. Now, it's, I, twice, it's kind of like God is putting an accent on, this is the second time, and he was supposed to do something different than what he did. See, it's like he puts a highlight on there. He struck it for the second time when he wasn't supposed to. He wasn't supposed to strike it at all the second time. Got it? Okay, now... Struck the rock twice. Now, 
Now, let's do something here because I want you to understand something. And this is, I'm going to go a little faster. If you haven't been here for the last, as we've been doing this series of Genesis and so on, some of this might go a little bit like this, but don't worry. It's, I'm just going to move. Here's what I want to show everybody, but I can't take the time because we've already done it. The first five books of the Bible that are the foundation of the whole of Scripture, and the reason why we're looking at them is because they inform the New Testament, they inform our lives today. The first five books are absolutely foundational to everything that God is doing. And the most single remarkable thing in them, despite creation and all the miracles that God does and everything else, I would argue that the most phenomenal thing about them is, is that Jesus Christ is all over it. He, who he is and is going to be 1,500 years later is revealed over and over and over and over. In fact, this is one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God in the world and the kind of God that he is, one that cares for you. Because what God writes, we know for certain, was written way before, no matter how much you want to argue when it was written. It was written way before there was a Jesus. We know that for certain. And in it, is all this Jesus stuff that isn't clear at all until Jesus shows up. And then it's obvious. Let me show you one that isn't so clear in the beginning, so you get a sense of it. In Genesis, the third verse in the Bible, the first verse is about who? God the Father. In the beginning, God created. What's the second verse about? Who is it about? And the Holy Spirit hovered over the formless and void and make it have purpose and meaning. And then what's the third verse? And God said, let there be light. And John comes along later and says, that was Jesus. That said is the word and the word is Christ. And that word is the one through whom all things were created and nothing was created except through him. You see it? So that word is Christ. Now, how, it was, can anybody at that point in time know that that's the case? No. But it gets a little more obvious because that's just the third verse and we find out later that that's clearly about Christ, the Trinity. But in the third chapter, here's what happens. Eve falls by the deception of the snake, right? And when God is judging the snake, Eve and then Adam, when he's judging the snake, he says something. He says, look, you deceived her and it's a problem. But I want to tell you something. There's going to be a descendant from her who is going to come and you're going to bite his heel. You're going to strike his heel. Jesus on the cross. Jesus was struck on the heel, right? It was a thing to be on the cross. But in that moment, Christ is going to be crushing your head. <laughs> you're going to bite him on the heel thinking that you've got him and you're killing him. And he's actually crushing you <laughs> in that moment. You see it? Now that is about Christ, and there's no arguing it. And it's said right there, and even the rabbinical scholars way before Jesus ever was are saying, what's that about? <laughs> because it's clear he's talking about something, which is why the rabbis come up with this concept, which they call rabbinical. It's, I'm sorry, which they call the messianic passages. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's all these messianic passages that are talking about Jesus. It's clear we don't know who this is, but it's clear that he's talking about somebody, right? A seed of hers is going to crush your head, okay? So there's Jesus, and, and we're in Genesis right now. We're in the first book. 
And I can show you others, but I'm going quick. At the end of Genesis, you remember Judah was at the head? Why is Judah at the head? He's the fourthborn. It should be Reuben, the firstborn. But when Jacob is prophesying over the four children, there's problems with the first three. And then he says something prophetically. The scepter will not depart from Judah. What's that mean? There's a king that will arise from Judah that will never lose his kingship. Now, the tribes of Judah become the kings of Israel, but then it kind of falls apart a little bit. Before Christ, by that time, sure, there's Judah kings, but not really. And then Jesus is born. And then the prophecy is completely fulfilled because the scepter never departs from Jesus. All Jesus, right? Let's just do a few more. Exodus, Passover. (laughs) What is Passover about? Well, see, you did a bad thing, so you're deserving of death. Sorry, I'm not talking to you. You did a bad thing, and you did something deserving of death. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow you to kill an animal, take the blood, put it on your doorposts, and when I come to kill your firstborn, firstborn Jesus, firstborn, there's so much typology in the Passover. I mean, I'm just, just touching on it. But the angel of death is going to pass over that house because of the blood that was shed an understanding that I deserve this, but something else was allowed to take it for me. You see it? The Passover, even the traditions that, the, that a secular Jewish family does for Passover, is there's like 20 to 30 different times when Jesus is like right there. There's a little thing that's hidden and we have to go find it. Jesus. It's just amazing. So, but you see that? Jesus, the Passover points to Jesus. The Red Sea. You understand? Death, burial, resurrection. <laughs> That's the baptism of Christ. This is the baptism of the Jews. New Testament says it. It's the baptism of the Jewish people, but it's our baptism that is made possible in Christ because we die with him, we're buried with him, and we rise new with him. Cleansed. Here's a good one. All of those sacrifices that Exodus goes into so much and that the other books do too, the sacrificial system, the whole of the sacrificial system is about this. You did something that was deserving of some kind of a consequence and you recognize it. And instead of that consequence coming on you, he allows it to be put on an animal. That's Jesus. Only he's not an animal, he's a person. And that's why all of the sacrificial system always looked forward one more year. It was for one year. You had to do the Day of Atonement, which just happened every single year to look forward to Christ. But when Christ came, he's the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. It's done. The whole sacrificial system is Jesus. (laughs) This is so cool. Okay, last one. The temple and the tabernacle. I've showed the image. I was going to put it up, but I don't want to get too in the weeds on this. But here's the point. There's, there's the courtyard around, and then there's the structure. Okay, I'm doing it on the side. You're looking down. So I'm doing it on the side. And then there's this longer rectangular room that is the holy place where the priests can minister unto the Lord continually, show bread and, and incense and so on. But then there's a thick veil. Don't think of a skinny veil. Two, three inches thick veil. A curtain. And that curtain separates you from the holy of holies, the place where God is. Because we've been separated from God by our sin. See it? But once a year, 
one priest is allowed to take some of that blood from the goat that they killed and, the, and he is allowed to bring it behind that curtain and sprinkle it on what is called, this is way before Jesus, the mercy seat, <laughs> which is Jesus. He is the mercy that sits on the law. <laughs> it's extraordinary. His blood shed to forgive. So the tabernacle, they have a veil tempering, but, but what happened when Jesus died? There was a great earthquake, and what happened? The veil in the temple that existed at that point in time was rent, ripped from top to bottom, so there's no more separation between us and God. <laughs> now, this is written 1,500 years before Jesus is and yet, you see how he fulfills it. There's no way you could make this stuff up. History and the way that the things were written and the timing of Jesus and all that, you can't make this up. He didn't fulfill like some horoscope that was kind of vague. He fulfilled typology that God was making incredibly clear in the Old Testament for a reason. Because he wanted us to know when Christ came that he was the fulfillment of everything. And that's what's happening in this moment. Because here's what God is trying to say through Moses. Jesus needs to be struck once, but that's it. From then on, you only need to ask. He loves you, he died for you, he took care of it. And all we need to do is what? Cry out. If we cry out, he'll answer. You see it? So there's a typology that Moses, unfortunately, broke. He didn't obey. He was told to speak, and he struck the rock not just once, but twice. You see it? Maybe he forgot. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, let's just say what God felt about that, because here's how God feels about it. And this is why I want to show you. This isn't about Moses saying we. This is about the typology that he broke. Because here's what God says. Now look, when, when we do all the stuff of Jesus and everything else, water gushes out. The entire community, it's rivers of living water that come from Christ and bring life to the whole community, right? But now watch. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate what? My holiness. Now that's an interesting word for you. My holiness to the people of Israel you will not lead them into the land that I'm giving you. Holiness. What do you mean you violated my holiness? I thought holiness was about sin. What's sin? I just, I've been for 22 years almost now. I've been defining sin for you in a very specific way, which is the proper definition of it. We think of sin as, did I not pray? Gosh, I can't, Jeff, um, we're not going to pray now because I'm not going to interrupt it. We have to come back around at the beginning, so don't let me forget. <laughs> Thank you for holding that up there the whole time. Oh, my gosh. I was supposed to do an announcement for Jeff, who does Eastside Academy, and he's a teacher there, and I'm going to do that at the end now, okay? But here's what I want you to see, okay? Why does he call it holiness? Here's, here's what sin is. Really, 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 really simple and 
super important that we properly define it. We think of sin as us doing something bad. And in fact, it really is us doing something bad, but not the way we... We think us doing something bad is me coming up and going like this, boom, (laughs) hitting somebody. That was bad. But here's how God's defining it. I have a way. I have made clear that way. And you chose to go another way. I said... You may eat of all the trees in the garden, but don't eat of that one particular tree. If you do, you'll die. And you decided it was a good idea to eat from that tree. (laughs) Sin is nothing more than doing things your way. Even if you have a good motive. Well, the way I figured it out, it was better that I should do thus. And this is one of the reasons my numbers is one of my favorite books. Because right here in this story and the one that we're just about to do, God is showing us that that kind of thinking gets us into whole lots of problems. And you would never think that. Now watch. His holiness. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See what we're saying? Holiness is God knows more than you do. And so for reasons that he knows and you don't, He's saying, do things what I'm asking you to do because it's better for you. It's better for everybody. Holiness just simply, you know what holiness means in its most boiled down form? Not like us. (laughs) That's what it means. You're doing things God's way, not your way. Your way is unholy because it's not God. It's your way. It may not even seem bad to you or anybody else, but it's not what God had. Holiness just means God's way. Doing it God's way. See it? Okay. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. You don't get it. You don't even know what's really going on. So here, now watch this. Moses had absolutely no way of understanding what was really going on with that. Did he? Did he understand that he was setting a typology for Christ who would come 1,500 years later, that he was to be struck once on the cross and then we were only to speak to him? Did he understand that? Did he have any way of understanding that? If he'd have known that, what do you think he would have done? He would have spoke, (laughs) but he couldn't know it. And so he did what felt right to him for reasons that weren't so good, which we'll get to. But Moses had absolutely no way of understanding what was really going on. Now watch, this is important for us. Look, if Moses didn't get it right, what chance do we have? But that didn't matter, did it? It didn't matter that he didn't understand It didn't matter. To be holy means to obey. To do whatever God is saying and only that. Period. Simple. We need to obey completely precisely because we have no way of understanding what is really going on. (laughs) Do you see it? You see what God's doing? Remember, he told us, you got to love me. And then in September, he started saying a new thing to us as a church. It was coming right out of the, you love me for me. But then what he was saying was, and therefore, obey. And you remember in a sermon a while back, I said something. I said, I really want to say follow me because it feels better to say follow me than to obey because obey is like a bad thing, particularly in America, right? Particularly to a bunch of Christians in, in a wealthy place that get a lot of stuff that they want and so on. Obey seems like a negative But I kept saying, the Lord keeps telling me, no, use the word obey, (laughs) precisely because it has that connotation. 
because it's a confrontational word. You don't want to do that. But it's important that you do. All right? You need to obey completely and precisely because we have no way of understanding what is really going on. That's what holiness is. If we want to be used by God, we need to be holy. You know what that means? By everybody's understanding before right now, that means being really good and not doing any bad things. Now, in a certain sense, that's still true. But the definition is not our judgment of good and bad. The definition is simply, did you do everything God's way and not yours? That's it. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say what I hear the Father saying. That is him only doing God's will. Nothing that he wants. In the garden, he was praying so hard that his, blood, his sweat became like drops of blood because he didn't want what was going to happen the next day on the cross. But he was praying in order to get his mind and his heart around so that he would do what God wanted. If Jesus had to do that, what makes us think that we don't have to be that, <laughs> to do that? That we don't have to take this holiness thing seriously and not in some works mentality, but simply in, do you really follow him? Do you actually, truly, actually obey him? Is that what your life is oriented to? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if it isn't, you've got no hope. <laughs> and if it is, actually, you're not going to make it either, as we're going to see. But grace. Here's why Moses failed. Numbers 11 now. We're at 20, so this is later. But... Look at, look at his attitude towards it. I can't care. He's saying this to God. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. <laughs> how different is that than the people say they want to go back to Egypt? <laughs> is there any difference, really? Moses is them. They are Moses. And we are Moses and them. I just love that. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. <laughs> He's complaining. So the point is, is that Moses was getting caught up too. There's a nice little lesson for us too, right? Do we take the bait of Satan? Do we take the bait and do we respond in a way that isn't what God would have? I've always said that whenever we pray for a child and we dedicate him to the Lord, I always do something. I always say, not only be over every action to raise them in the way that they should go, but be over every reaction. I think we can get our actions pretty good, but our reactions are a whole different game, <laughs> right? And this is a reaction on Moses' part. He was frustrated, and he went out there and did what seemed, he struck, had him strike the rock again. I'm gonna strike it doubly hard this time, <laughs> those lousy human beings. And then what he finds out is, you're not gonna lead him into the land. Oh my God, how tragic. And as I keep saying, if Moses couldn't do it, what hope do we have? See why I love this book so much? This is my walk I'm reading here. What hope do I have? Well, grace. <laughs> but can we do something? Can we quit being so cheap with grace? Because here's what we do in modern America. Now that we understand God's love for us so beautifully, we just go out and do whatever we want and trust that he's going to grace us. Trust that he's going to love us and cover us because, you know, we accepted him as Lord. 
Accept him as Lord means is that you do what he says, that you're his servant. Accept him as Lord means that you really try and get it right. Are you ever going to get it right perfectly? No, let's be clear about that. And when you don't, what happens? His blood covers. But if you're not even trying to get it right, <laughs> and may I say, let's be really clear, that is the stance of most American Christians at this point. We're not even really trying to get it right. We understand grace so well that we completely misunderstand it. We forget the verse that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'm not trying to dangle your feet over the fires of hell and tell you you're going to go to hell because you're such a bad person. I'm trying to do the opposite of that. What I'm trying to say is recognize that you are going to hell, but that God saves you from that, that he begins a work in you, and that you're supposed to be participating in what he's doing in you. You're supposed to be going along with it, right? We're supposed to be doing this. Don't use grace to keep you from honestly, sincerely, and utterly going after trying to obey. Don't think that trying to obey is works. As long as you don't try and finish in the flesh what was begun in the spirit. How did God get you to obey initially? He came into you and made you new, gave you a new nature, new desires, and then the Holy Spirit comes in and lives with that and does what? Helps you follow helps you obey, helps you do things God's way because now you have a desire in you to do things God's way and not your own way. That's the desire that's in you. That's who you are. And the Holy Spirit wants to help. So here's what we're saying is cry out to the Lord and let the Spirit lead you in how to truly follow him. Don't think that by just get throwing out your TV and getting rid of everything and doing all this kind of stuff, you can get there. You will not get there. It doesn't mean throwing out your TV is a bad thing, by the way. Right? What it does mean is, is where are you going? What are you doing? What's your walk about? The same Paul that revealed grace is the same one that said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I fear lest I run the race and end up short of it myself. You gotta hold two truths in your head. You can't be a slave to either one you got to be fully in both at the same time. The tension of them is what causes us to walk right. I know that I can't do it, and God loves me. I know that nonetheless I'm to do everything I can to do it. You see it? And I'm letting him show me how to do that because I'm asking the Spirit to do it. I'm not trying to get it done in my flesh. Got it? So this is good stuff, right? This is like, a, this is like how we're supposed to live, Okay? So here we go. Now, you remember he said there's this really strange story. Well, it doesn't start off strange at all. We were in Numbers 20, now we're in 20, 21, and we're at the second story. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor to take to the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. It's just a big, long loop. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. They began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? Oh my gosh, here it comes again. They complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink. And by the way, here's a new one. And we hate this horrible manna. 40 years and no Bernays. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Now, it is totally appropriate that the Lord should send a snake. Why? Who does it? It's because of the garden. What does the snake evoke in you? The garden, right? And what is that all about? Well, watch. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. 
crafty. This is going to be clever. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? Absolutely not. What did he say? You may eat of every tree in the garden. So Satan is lying right here. And the woman says, oh, no, no. She gets it right, kind of. She, oh, no, no, no. We, we can eat of all the trees, but we can't eat of that one. We can't even touch it. Now watch what Satan does here. Watch this. This crafty snake. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now that's a lie. But now watch how he gets us to take the bait, to take, this, to take the hook. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God's withholding something from you. Now, I'm telling you right now, there may be one Christian in this room who has never had that thought before. And I'm asking you on the, at the end of the service today to lay hands on all the rest of us. Amen. Because every single other person in this church has had some moment in their life when they have looked at something that they wanted. We talked about it two weeks ago. They've looked at something that they wanted and they had the thought, God is keeping this from me. He's not really doing the best thing for me. I need to do something in order to ensure this for me because I'm certain that this is going to make my life better. Do you see it? God is not really for you. He's going to let you be a lot, but he's not going to let you be like him. He's going to withhold that. See it? And if you ever get into God, you thinking that God is withholding something from you, you're toast. <laughs> right there, boom, you lose. Now, what is true? God said, you made of every tree in the garden. And in fact, here's what he said even before that. Let us make human beings in whose image? Our image. And be what? Like us. And then in the New Testament, after Christ makes us new beings, here's what John says about what Christ has done. Everyone who has been born of God, made a new creature, God's seed remains in him, us. Because he's been born of God. That's what it means to be born of God. To be born again means that God gave you a new nature. Whose nature? His nature. Is he trying to withhold something from us? Or is he trying to give us everything? And most of all, to be like him as much as we possibly can. He's not withholding anything from us. His, his God rejoices that we should be like him and be in love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in blissful, incredible, beautiful, magnificent love, oneness with each other. That is what God's heart is. It was Jesus' last prayer. It is everything that God cares about. I want you to be like me. The one thing that I do is I say, I'm not going to make you be like me. I'm not going to make you a robot so that you are like me because that's not like me. I have free will. So I'm going to give you free will. You make your choices. And when you make your choices to be like him, then that's what brings you into the promised places that God has for you. I want to be like you, not who I was, not who I am in my flesh. I don't want what I want. I want what you want. Because you're trying to bring me into something incredible. But what's Satan doing? Nah, he's not like that. <laughs> he's trying to take something from you. He's trying to keep something from you. 
And as soon as you get into that sort of Scrooge spirit, then what happens? You complain to God, <laughs> right? You're keeping something from me. I can't trust you. I can't do it your way because you're not going to do what I want. <laughs> right? Jesus, help us. The thief, Satan's purpose, is to still kill, destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Steal what? Steal from you that you're his child, that he loves you. Steal from you who he is, all for you, completely and utterly. And that will kill you because it'll separate you from him who is life. If you buy into the lie, if you let yourself be stolen from, then it will kill you because you'll be separated from God who is life. That's what separates us. And that destroys us. <laughs> right? So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and many were bitten and died. You see how appropriate it is that he sent snakes? What is this? This is a, this is a real thing. A real snake bit real heels and killed real people. But it's also meaning. And the meaning is what? Let Satan get his fangs in you and you're going to die. <laughs> Take in his poison and you're going to die. A burning death. As the fiery is burning. Here's what it's teaching us though. 1,500 years later, here's what's teaching us today. It's not just our fallen human nature that's a problem. There's also an adversary out there, Satan, who's right there whispering in our ears, filling our thoughts with things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. <laughs> We're supposed to take every thought captive to do What? Watch this. Satan is, here, stand up. Satan is whispering. You know, he's not good. He's not got you. He's not. See what I mean? He's whispering things, right? We're saying, no, I'm not going to buy into that. So what does God do? This is that little diagram you see in all the movies and, and funny little stories. God brings the Holy Spirit and puts the Holy Spirit inside of us. And what's the Holy Spirit do? He's telling you the whole time what's true and what's real. Don't buy that lie. That's not true. See? Satan's trying to whisper in your ear, but God has put himself inside of us saying, nah, <laughs> I ain't gonna have any of that. Right? Okay. Then the people came to Moses, they cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. This is where the story gets strange. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then everyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the poison bronze snake and be healed. This is weird. It is strange. It is phenomenally profound. This entire lesson about obedience 
is brought to a cosmic, transcendent truth right now. In this book, in this story. Two things. First one, it reveals so amazingly what is really meant when the word says, God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now watch. That's a snake. You shouldn't be looking at a snake. <laughs> you should be looking at God. God heals you. It should be God. Some representation of God, a cross, whatever. Look on something of God and God heals you. But God has that snake, you know, the thing from the garden. It's the snake that's on that stick. Why would he do that? We think that God and Satan are in some sort of battle. That is not true. Satan is completely and utterly prescribed to what he can and cannot do. The first book of the Bible ever written is Job. And at the very beginning of Job, the only things that Satan is allowed to do are the things that God lets him do. Satan is, he's there and he's real and he's an adversary, just like the Holy Spirit is an advocate. But God is only letting him do. Now, here's what we say in our natural minds. We say, well, God wouldn't let horrible things happen. Really? Here's what God does, resurrection. Here's what resurrection is. Something really bad happens because it's the only way to get to something that is profoundly better. Here's the biggest illustration of it, Jesus on the cross. What's the worst thing that could ever happen in all of creation? God makes beings to be in love with them, to be in relationship with them, to be with them, to be them to be in him and him to be in them. And what they do instead is they go their own way to the point that they kill God, their maker. You cannot come up with anything worse than that. And let's be clear. If that hadn't happened, you wouldn't have Christ in your life now. The worst thing that could ever happen was that God's creation would kill him. And if that hadn't happened, then Christ would not have died for your sins. <laughs> the very thing that God was using. Yeah, Satan was biting a heel. But God was crushing a head. So it's a really bad thing. How could God let his own son die? How horrible is that? How could God let a plane fly into a building? You have to get a hold of some. How could God let my mom get Alzheimer's? How could God let this disease happen to me? How could God, how could God, how could God, how could God, how could God? How many things do we have? And here's the thing that you have to understand. When you stand on the other side, you will look back at absolutely everything happened in your life and you will say two things about it. That is phenomenally good. It is extraordinary what you use that for. You are in control every minute doing the very least that I needed in order to fall in love with you. <laughs> These things that happen in the world, we can look at them from our perspective and we will never, ever, ever make sense of them. 
But if we look at it from God's perspective, we will see that God lets really terrible things happen all the time for unbelievable reasons. And if you don't believe me, re-listen to Joe's sermon that started this whole thing. Absolutely everything in our lives is carefully orchestrated by him to cause us to truly find and fall completely and utterly in love with him. And this is what he's showing you by putting that snake up there. Satan may be your adversary, but he is prescribed by Jesus. You do not have to fear him whatsoever. He does not have any power over you. He is, God can use him for what he wants, even to heal you. (laughs) That's not Satan that healed us, you understand, but you get the point. Truly, God is in fact causing everything to work together for the most amazing, astounding, incredible, miraculous, unfathomable good. Good beyond our our capacity to even begin to understand it. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now be, be aware of something. God is actually doing that for every single person on the face of the earth. He is orchestrating love. Some people will shift from their way of seeing it to his way of seeing it. And they will fall in love with him. Through the worst things. Happens all the time. Other people will never be able to make that shift. And they will never enter into the greater thing that God had for them to be in. The surpassing, transcendent moment. Now right there, everything that we just said is worth the price of admission. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Do you see how much more profound that really is? Don't come to him complaining, God, don't you see what I'm going through? Come to him and say, God, it's clear to me that you know what I'm going through. And what I need is you. So I'm crying out to you. This is what I would like. I don't know if it's the right thing or not, but this is what I think. Come help me, would you please? Oops, I went too fast, didn't I? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Bring everything to him. Now, we did this a couple of weeks ago, so let me go to the second one now. The people came to Moses and cried out, and then this snake comes up. Now, watch this. This is the second thing. Last thing I'm doing. It reveals how critical it is that we follow him and only him. Here's why. Now watch this. This is Dave Brunk. It was the casual Jewish believers that simply looked up at that snake and were healed. People that didn't take their faith seriously, they put a snake up on a thing and God said to look at it or Moses said to look at it and they had no problem with that and they looked at the snake and they were healed. But this is the Dave Brunk insight. The serious Jewish believer, the one that was really after the things of God, said to themselves, you mean we're supposed to take a snake? You know, like the one that received us in the garden and lifted up on a stick so that we have to look up and you know, worship it? And then we'll be healed? Yeah, right. I'm not falling for that. I would never do that. And so they die because it didn't make sense to them. (laughs) God gave us extraordinary intellect. He gave us reason. He gave us experience that we could learn from stories. We could learn from the Bible, the Holy Spirit in our lives. He gave us extraordinary things to cause us to learn. Here's what we can do wrong. We've become so smart in reason that we know everything. In which case, we will end up doing what we think. Or we can use all of our reason and intellect in a pursuit of coming to a place of humility 
and emptying of saying, I need to be discerning of where I get it my way and not your way. I need to use all the intellect I've got, all the discernment I've got, all the experience I've got. You are teaching me how to do what? Follow you and you only. Because I can tell you right now, I think I would have been one of the ones that was looking up. I would have been one of the ones that said, you shouldn't be looking at that snake. And I just wouldn't have died. I probably would have convinced two or three other people that they shouldn't be looking up there either. And I'd have killed them. You see it? Right? So what's God doing in this story right now? In the most profound way you could ever imagine, he's saying, you got to get to where all you're doing is following me. We simply cannot understand all that he is really trying to do. We cannot. We start there, and it gets easy to get to the conclusion. So we must radically obey, which is to say radically trust. (laughs) Julie says something about me all the time, which is, Kurt, you never get to preach a sermon that you don't have to live. And that's true. Thank God. Two weeks ago, I stood in here and I said, write down your desire and then understand that God's okay with your desire for the most part and he just cares about your posture towards it. Like, are you complaining that you're not getting it or are you thanking him that he's got you and whether he's gonna give it to you or not, you trust him? Two weeks ago, we wrote that down and brought these up here. It was a precious moment in the Lord in this church. I said, I've got something I'm really struggling with. I got this thing where I was thinking, you know, you're not going to give this to me, so I got to do some things in order to make sure I might get it, (laughs) whether you want it or not. Now, that's not exactly how I was processing it, but in retrospect, I can look back and say, yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. (laughs) And I know now how sinful that was. And so I went out on Monday, and I prayed to the Lord. And while I was on my walk, the Lord did a very precious thing. I just said, Lord, I just give up on all those other things I was doing. I hear your sermon. I got it. I'm going to change my life. I am not going to do that anymore, period. I'm not going to pursue that at all. If you want that, great. I'm going to make my petition known. But I'm going to thank you that you know better than I do. And I'm going to receive whatever it is that you want to do with me, good or bad, whatever, right? But the Lord did something really cool for me while I was on my walk, He spoke to me, and I'm not going to tell you what he said because it's just so stupid. But not what he said, but how I am. But but the point is, is what he said. He said a very comforting word to me. He said something to me that I was like, that was a word from you. And it tells me that it's going to be okay. And I'm like, this is awesome. And literally, for the last two weeks, I've been living in the peace of that word. And let me make it clear. That's a good thing, right? God gives you a word. You're supposed to live in it. Whether it's good or bad, you're supposed to live in it. And I've been living, this was a word meant for peace, and it brought me peace, and I'm so thankful. And I've been living in peace. And last night, I was going through this sermon, finishing up, just making, I I write it way before this, but I was going through the last finishing touches of just redoing the PowerPoint, and then I go to bed and let it soak in my mind and so on. And I did this last thing, and I stood up. And I was walking to the bathroom and then the bedroom, a little too much information there. But, but I'm walking to bed and the Lord said something to me. Are you at peace because of the word I gave you? Which my answer was, yes, of course. <laughs> but what he said was, are you at peace because of the word I gave you? Or because you know that I'm good? Period. Whether that word comes to pass or not. You see what he did? 
Do you love me? Or the stuff I do for you? <laughs> and I went, crap! <laughs> Not again! <laughs> but I thought it was a pretty good way to end this sermon. I'd already written the sermon, and he gave me the ending. And here's what I want to say to you. It's love. Do you love him or not? If you do, don't let anything else get in the way. Because it doesn't matter. Do you love him or not? Learn how to just love him. Will he give you words that are helpful? Yes. Should you be leaning on them? Absolutely. Should you be leaning on them more than the one that gave them to you? Never. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you for this sermon. Thank you for this moment where you spoke to us to teach us. In Jesus' holy and most phenomenal name, thank you, Lord. Reach down in front of you, would you? There's these two cups. Lord, we lift up the bottom cup in which is your body broken for us. And we recognize that what that symbolizes is that we have broken our lives. We have chosen to go our own way in a million different ways, at a million different levels. Over and over and over we've done this. And so we put our finger in there and we see that we've done that and we say, we recognize we've done that. We recognize our sin. We recognize that we've gone our own way. But now we lift this cup up and we look through the cup to Jesus on the cross who broke his body that ours didn't have to be. By his stripes, we are healed. That's the real healer on the pole, on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that even there you're being revealed. You who is getting victory over that, the true healer who heals me and us right now. So take this together saying, heal me, Lord. And now in Jesus' spectacular, beautiful, beautiful name. In this upper cup is the life that you want me to live. The life that I just continually choose other than. But every time I preach, I stand here and I say, I want the life that you have for me and not the life that I keep choosing. And so I am crying out, asking you, Holy Spirit, to come and to show me how to actually enter into it. I don't finish in my flesh. I don't do it by works. I do it by your grace and your Holy Spirit leading me every second. So in Jesus' name, I take this life saying, I want the life you have for me. Now we're going to take the offering, and then I'm going to do it. So come on forward. No, but keep reminding me. I can forget it. It's two seconds from now. I can forget it. Ushers, come forward. God, we come before you right now, and we give you an offering. Here's what we're doing right now. We're saying thank you. We're recognizing that you're the one who did these extraordinary things. And we love you. And in love we say, here, Lord, take my life. This is the labor of my hands, but the health you gave me and the job you gave me. And I pour back into you 
saying, here, Lord, take and build your kingdom with it. In Jesus' holy and precious name. Thank you, Lord. Now, before you guys start singing,